one of the biggest interesting use cases we've seen is sort of as an access mechanism. So whether that's access to an event, so I might be a ticket going to a, a show. The most important part of that is baked into NFTs is this concept of a royalty. So let's say I am the NFL and I have, you know, let's just say it's 100,000 tickets to the Super Bowl. Well, guess what? Those tickets get swept up by the season ticket holders and then they get immediately scalped and sold and sold and sold. And the NFL never sees any sales on those. With an NFT, you can set an arbitrary royalty rate that says, okay, 20% of this has to go back to the NFL every time it sells. And that gets really, really interesting because now you've built a really compelling business model into this. And guess what? It, It means they don't have to care about scalpers anymore. Just stop it. The -the run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum, bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with errors in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ. And we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has 20 or more years of experience in Web 1, Web 2, and now Web 3. He's got lots of experience building companies and products at internet scale. With three successful exits under his belt, he's humble enough to admit he's got a laundry list of faults and failures, which is why I like him. We're talking to him today about his new venture that is disrupting the physical asset ownership space, leveraging NFTs. We'll get into that very shortly. Coming to us live from Portland, Oregon, please welcome our disruptor, co-founder and CEO at Jump.co, Scott Kaviton. Woohoo! Woohoo! Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. <laughs> You're welcome. I love the energy this morning. It's driven by caffeine, so let's let's be honest. (laughs) That's another reason why I really like you. You're very real. Before we get into this whole NFT thing and breaking it down and talking about the status quo and then building it up again, what is your fundamental main ingredient for disruptive innovation? Honestly, it has nothing to do with me. It's ultimately about timing. We've been fortunate enough to live through 25 years of the most disruptive, interesting, compelling times ever. And, you know, 25 years ago, it was pretty much sequestered to West Coast white males. And, and over time, as the technology sort of permeated the entire planet, honestly, it's, the opportunities have, have changed and things have moved quicker and quicker. And so, you know, for me, being a part of Web1 and the original dot-com boom-bust cycle, being a part of the Web2, you know, and the sort of cloud computing revolution that happened, Mobile was a huge one. Obviously, we'd had mobile phones in our pockets for years, but it's when Steve Jobs pulled that little iPhone out of his pocket that the whole thing just blew up and was was crazy. Web3 has been really, really bonkers. And we'll talk about that a little bit. A lot of fraudsters, a lot of scamsters, but it's still a very disruptive, very, very interesting technology. And now we're on the crux of 
what's likely to be the biggest one, which is AI. You know, I've been digging into that quite a bit. I mean, just like the 100 million people who've played with ChatGPT, it <laughs> is really, really fascinating. And it's changed the paradigm such that users now expect it to be part of your product. You know, when you see these things happen, you have a, a window of time to take advantage of them and, and really take advantage of that disruption. Yeah, that's so very interesting about timing. And, you know, when you mentioned the last 25 years, I really thought you were going to say since COVID. And I was like, 25 years. But, you know, I thought about it and I was like, hell yeah, you're right. Like dot com, cloud computing, mobile, Web3, which people don't even know what that is. Right. Well, and, and COVID is actually a good one to add to that list, honestly. I hadn't even really thought about that because it forced the digitization of so many industries and accelerated what probably was going to take five or 10 years down to a year. You know, when I think about telemedicine and, and healthcare in the US is completely a train wreck. However, it did advance very, very quickly over the course of COVID. And now my daughter was sick the other day. We did a tele thing. I went to the pharmacy. It was like a, a 45 minute process. And before that was going to the office, book a time, what's going to be tomorrow, all that kind of stuff. Remember the wait time when you used to go to a doctor and then COVID came and then was like, let me get you in, get you out. It was like, how come we couldn't do this before? Yeah. Now we have telehealth. Yeah. So COVID's been a huge catalyst. Let's talk about this. Would you classify Web3 as part of the whole NFT evolution, revolution, or do you consider them separate? Yeah, I think I think it's one more element. To me, there's there's something about this public ledger, this blockchain that's really, really interesting that I think is really disruptive. The, the problem is because the currency was currency, it was fiat, it drew a lot of sort of bad actors to the space. And, you know, let's be honest, the the people who, you know, Do Kwan and SBF, these are players who did some really horrible things. The scams they ran were as old as time. They really had nothing to do with the technology. They were confidence scams. And so they convinced people, hey, trust me, I'm, I'm the one riding this wave. Don't worry about it. And that was where people, I think, got themselves into trouble. And that's super unfortunate. Now, let's be honest, through other technological shifts we've seen, we've had our fair share of scamsters and fraudsters as well. It's just the currency was things like people's personal data. When you think about what Zuckerberg has done over the years in terms of sort of, you know, two steps forward, one step back, like we're going to take a bunch of your data, do some horrible things with it, and then apologize. And oh, by the way, we're going to keep doing that. The currency there was people's data. And you don't necessarily, you're like, ah, whatever. I'm getting some free service out of this. I am the product. That's fine. But really, it's, it's almost as, as egregious as, you know, stealing people's money, in my opinion. I don't think people understood or... Maybe they are starting to. They didn't understand the full consequences and ramifications of that. I don't think yeah. people think in long term. They don't. They don't. And so they go, oh, well, okay, I'm getting free service or other service. Don't you think that's the case? Yeah, for sure. I, th I think they think that they're getting something for free or like, hey, cool, I get to talk to my mom or my friends or whatever. And then what's really interesting about this, and I'm, I've started to be think and be really a lot more cognizant of this is each one of these new technological shifts has ultimately been weaponized. You can go down a really dark conspiracy path on that. But but the reality is you sort of have to understand that that's part of, of what's going to happen. Uh, Web3 was weaponized. We definitely know that social has been weaponized through a variety of state actors, even here in the US. 
which is is pretty scary. And, and so the same thing is probably going to apply to AI, right? We have to know that, ask ourselves, when is this going to be weaponized and what's that going to look like? It's already being weaponized. I just don't think it's on a broad scale yet. Yeah. And I, and I think it's going to go a lot faster where Web 2 took about 10 years. Mobile took about seven, you know, five to seven years. I think the AI revolution is going to be really quick. I think it's going to be a two-year window of like craziness. Yeah. In a nutshell, like in a layman's terms for our listeners, describe Web 3.0 and how it's been weaponized so they get a full context. Web 3, unfortunately, covers a whole gamut. Everybody wants to just sort of say, oh, Web 3 is Bitcoin, but it's, it's not. There's so much more to it. And it's really about this decentralized sort of programmatic layer to the internet that allows people to interact ideally in a trustless environment. In other words, I don't have to trust, you know, a specific central repository like a bank or somebody to manage my identity in a perfect Web3 world because there are programmatic mechanisms to sort of control and make sure that no one can sort of control centrally everything. So so think about today, if I want to search for something on the internet, I have to go to Google and that's a central authority. And Google can and does often change the rules around how things get indexed or how you see the results. And so that's a concern for people who are using it. Google has ultimately been mostly good, I think, but there's opportunities for bad actors to happen. And that's sort of what's happened with Web3. And going to now when you get a lot of folks who are like, hey, I'm excited about this decentralized change. It's it's a, a thing I can believe in. A new generation of internet users can say, wow, that's cool. I'm, I'm going to get involved with that. It almost becomes cult-like. And, and these figures that that do these things lead charges of disgruntled people and people who are, are searching for themselves and a cause. And they get excited about it and they tout it and they do all these things. And you know, ultimately, when you look at one of the biggest ones out there was FTX that happened last fall. Basically, what they did is they said, send us your money, send us your cryptocurrency, and we'll manage it for you. You can trust us. And oh, by the way, when you do that, we're going to give you returns on it, an interest rate, just like when you go to a bank that are heavily regulated and people don't necessarily like that, I get some interest rate back. And what do they do? They have controls and mechanisms in place to lend that money out to people such that they can earn that money so that I get a return on on giving them my money. What they did is they said they just sort of wantonly took all that money and then just started using it for investments and all manner of things with no, absolutely no internal controls on anything. Right. No regulate. They're actually acting as a bank. Yeah. And with no regulation, right? I mean, simplicity of it. For sure. I mean, they were incorporated in the Bahamas. It was a bunch of 20-somethings. They literally managed their accounts through chat and IM messages. There were only like two or three people who had access to the actual crypto wallets themselves where the money was flowing. You just had no controls in these things. And so it was pretty scary stuff. Now, why in a world of decentralized, trustless, why would you trust somebody like that to, to manage that and with the promises that just don't make any sense? Well, I think a lot of it is, is FOMO. People see other people making all this money. They hear the stories. You know, the press picks up some people sells for a, an NFT for $67 million. And everybody's like, oh, I got to get in on this. There's always those stories. And, and that's what I think people get swept up in. And now the federal government here in the U.S. is jumping in to try and rein a lot of this in. And, and it, of course, I think they're going to overcorrect a little bit, which they probably have to. 
it is for the good of the consumers. And then, you know, there's sort of this rubble that's been created of, of all these companies that have crashed down. But the reality is during this crazy lead up to this boom, there was a lot of investment that went in to build, you know, what I would call infrastructure. So that's the things like the railroad tracks, the super highways that that can run these interesting things. And now that the big players have sort of have crashed around, there's still all this infrastructure around and interesting things can now happen on those rails. And so that's kind of where, where we see this as, wow, we can leverage a lot of this technology to solve some really interesting problems for people. And that's, to me, is where we're going to net out of all this. And that's, that's very, very exciting. That is exciting. And what do you think some of the biggest problems are that can be solved with this technology? Where the sort of rubber meets the road on this, I think, especially in emerging markets, the, this idea of being able to bank the bankless. I, I'm not a fan of this 100% trustless ecosystem. I think ultimately people want to put their trust in brands and there's network effects in those brands working together with communities. There just have to be some guardrails in place. And whether it's you know sort of benevolent leaders of those organizations or regulatory frameworks, that remains to be seen. But that, that's a huge, huge opportunity. Just like when you think about the greater continent of Africa, they just sort of skipped telecom and went straight to mobile because the idea of running cables and wires for telephones everywhere just didn't make sense. It just wasn't feasible. But then, you know, if you can slap up a bunch of cell towers, wow, that's that's huge. I think the same thing is going to be true here with uh, being able to bank the bankless, especially for currencies that that are either manipulated centrally we have our fair share of this, but we also have here in the U.S. sort of Wall Street, which is a, a big yin to the yang of the federal government. And as flawed as it is, it is still a system that that actually functions pretty well. It's workable. I think people get on their high horse about things being perfect. That nothing's ever going to be perfect. It is workable. I think one of the most interesting things, and it's obviously where, where we get really excited, is this idea of having a essentially a, a digital layer across the internet that represents physical assets. And so what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Let's like yeah. really get into that because people are so nebulous about that. Yeah, so so let's think about if I go onto eBay today and I list something for sale, let's say it's just a, a trading card. I've got a, a cool Michael Jordan card. I can list that and I have to be a seller on there. And I might have some profile. I might have some stars. I might have some negative reviews. And then a buyer comes along and they have to go, okay, well, here's this thing that you say it is. I have no way to verify that. I, I don't know if it's actually that thing, but I'm going to trust you because you have a couple stars. Awesome. So you purchase it. They have to send it to you. There's a whole insurance thing that has to happen. And if you get lucky, it happens to be that card and you now hold it in your hand. And that's really cool. But what happens is that transaction is sort of happens in this silo on eBay. There's no way to track that. There's no way to know that person A sold it to person B, especially when you think about these items, especially when you think about artifacts or fine art and those kinds of things, people don't own them. They just sort of get to hold them until they pass them to somebody else. Because we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of years. How do you track those things and how can you do it in such a way that you don't have to depend on eBay? And that's kind of where... What do you mean it's not trackable? I mean, eBay tracks it. They do, except that the idea of now that I have that item that I bought, I can't verify that I got it from seller A. There's no mechanism on eBay that says that. Let's say I bought that card from Michael Jordan and I want to prove that I bought it from Michael Jordan. There's no way to say that. In other words, the provenance is sort of immediately lost when you sell that. How is that lost? 
how do I know that that's Michael Jordan that, that sold that to me? Oh, I don't really know. I get it. What's the traceability of that? And the more importantly, not just the traceability, but the transparent means of being able to trace that. I can't go into eBay and say, hey, eBay, can I see a listing of all your transactions? And I want to see who did those transactions. And then I want to externally through a third party verify who those people were. You can't do that in eBay, but I can on the blockchain. And, and that's what's interesting here for basically creating a permanent record of provenance. Right now, it's for digital assets, NFTs. But if we can map those one-to-one to physical assets, then it gets really, really interesting. Because now I, I can say, hey, this item was owned by Michael Jordan. He actually signed it. Or you know, even if a famous person owns something, that gets really interesting. Beyonce owned a specific dress and that sells. That will have more value than just if it came off the rack. And are you saying that NFT mirrors the physical asset? That's right. That's really able to show the chain of command, the transparency of point A to point B, who and so forth. Yeah. Got it. And that thereby actually will increase the value of these assets because over time you can now compare like assets with other ones. And because you have a chain of provenance, you can understand the value or people will have more perceived value for those things. Now you say chain of provenance. What does that mean exactly? What does that word mean? Well, provenance is knowing who had the item or who had possession of the item at what time to what time, or if they currently hold it. And how can you verify that on a platform like eBay? There's no way to sort of just look it up and say, who, who currently holds this item? I, I can't do that. But because of the public nature of the blockchain, it's just like the internet. I can go out and look and say, I know this wallet is owned by Jimmy Fallon. And Jimmy Fallon has in that wallet all these interesting public things that he owns. And I know that right now. And there's a bunch of, of really sort of interesting second order effects on that because now that he has that list of things that he owns, that becomes potentially an access control list. In other words, people could say, oh, awesome, I want to go to an event, but you have to have this thing in your wallet to be able to do it. It's almost like a, a membership card or an ID. It opens up all these interesting possibilities when you have this sort of transparent layer that anyone can verify and query. And there's a whole range of other services that will live on top of this that other people can build that will interoperate to provide you know, some really, really interesting services. So lending, insurance, fractionalization, all these kinds of things get really, really interesting. When you have a really simple sort of atomic unit of, I know that this physical asset maps to this digital thing that is verifiable, transferable, and trackable over time. What is this cutting out? Besides lack of transparency, what is it helping? What is it cutting out? I think it's it's cutting out the need or the dependence on these centralized bodies. In other words, eBay, everybody uses eBay because eBay is what you use for these things. They have a, a critical mass of buyers and sellers that know that that's where you go, but they're not innovating on top of the platform. They really haven't changed eBay in years. And why would they? It's the sort of innovator's dilemma. It's what Google's going through with AI right now. That creates a unique opportunity for people to build new services that are beyond what eBay would do and how eBay monetizes. eBay doesn't have any incentive to change what they're doing until they're disrupted. In other words, until the spigot of cash gets turned off or starts to dwindle. And so this is a unique opportunity for new brands and new companies to spin up to be able to offer these services. Now, the key is you can't just go in and say, hey, if you use our service, you're going to get super rich really quick. And so we're seeing all those folks kind of go to the wayside. And now people are saying, well, hey, I have interesting, compelling 
assets, you know, whether it's trading cards or vintage vehicles or fine art or those kinds of things. Well, geez, that's kind of interesting. And gosh, I'd love to be able to have a stake in one of those. And does it benefit me to be able to represent that digitally from an access control perspective, from a lending perspective, from a fractionalization perspective? That's for sure true. You know, it's very interesting. Let's talk about vintage cars or exotic cars, because I really like those, right? So you have a vintage car, you have an exotic car, right? You get a car and you, you know, you have to do your due diligence on this. You have to like have a PPI, you have to see like who owned it, you know, all of this information. And you're relying on these trusted sources to be able to get that. I'm sure there's a whole process for vintage cars as well. Are you saying that those sources could be more transparent or this NFT could make sure that those physical assets, like the data that you're getting is actually correct? That's right. That's right. And, and once you, you know, for example, once you could map a an NFT to a VIN, now all of a sudden you can track all sorts of other things. In other words, maybe you had work done at a specific shop. They can yeah. verify that that was done. Even taking vintage cars off the table, if I, a car is going to be far more attractive to me if it has a really good Carfax record in the sense that all of the maintenances have been done. And just having that sort of provenance is really, really important for a vehicle because it increases the value just because there is data there, if that makes sense. There is data. And a lot of times that data can be like fudged. It can, it can for sure. And so then the case of Carfax, pretty much anybody can put information in. I mean, if you're a shop, you can register with Carfax and you can say this VIN had this work done and you just sort of have to trust it. And there's no external means of verifying that, you know, outside of Carfax. But Going back to the vintage cars component, you know, if you take like Jackson Barrett or Mecham, th- these are these auctions that happen all across the US and globally, folks flock to these events. But imagine if you had a, a very, you know, interesting, compelling car that a lot of people would love to own, you could have an NFT for it that you could fractionalize that would allow people to have a stake in it such that, oh, hey, I have a 5% stake in this vehicle. And gosh, it's going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma next week. Because I have a stake, I get to go to the VIP tent to go actually go sit in that car. And that's really cool. Now, who would really own that car if other people have stakes in it? So that's a great question. And that's actually one of the problems that we've solved, which is the the title is actually held by the physical owner. And what they're doing is they're essentially fractionalizing a stake in the, the vehicle itself. And what they get is essentially an NFT that allows them access to utility. In other words, getting to visit the car or let's say it's a a really fancy old school Corvette and maybe there's a VIP Corvette tent. And guess what? I can show this and says, oh, you're you're a holder. Awesome. Great. You get to go into this tent and you get to see all the cool things. Do they get to drive it? Do they get to use it? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, those are all the kinds of consumptive utility is what we call that. And there's also a certain amount of bragging rights too, because there's a digital portfolio that we allow folks to have that would say, hey, I actually have a stake in this vehicle and that's pretty cool. Or I own this entire vehicle and it's verifiable. In other words, I could have some pictures on my website that say I own this car, just like you see people kind of leaning on Lamborghinis and taking selfies. (laughs) Sure, I can do that, but but this is actually verifiable. and, And that was interesting. Now, once that's verified, if I go to sell that, guess what? I can prove it because I have this NFT that says it's mapped to that physical thing. And again, there's a whole bevy of other services that spring up because you might want to have third-party authentication folks who say, yep, there is no rust damage on this. I'm going to put my seal of approval and tie it to that NFT that maps to that physical car. And that 
adds to that provenance. And at the root of all this is this really boring public ledger that just says this NFT is owned by this person and this NFT maps to this physical asset, this car, this piece of fine art, whatever it is. And that's a really simple mechanism, but it's really, really important and fundamental to how all of this sort of bakes out and becomes this big, really interesting sort of matrix of services that all work together. It is a really interesting matrix of services. I guess my basic question, I'm thinking of our listeners and so forth, but why? Like if I have a vintage car, I mean, you're basically selling stock in your own minor company, right? Like, oh, I have this vintage car and I'm going to sell a little bit of stock in it so people can have, quote unquote, some ownership. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say stock because a lot of folks might think that this is like a stock. But I think the difference here is if you know anybody who's owned a vintage car, they've likely never made a penny on it, right? Because they become these money pits. I had a vintage car. I didn't make any money off of it, but it was great. But what you did get was this joy of owning it. There was this consumptive, wow, I got to be a part of this thing for some period of time. And I may have lost money on it, but guess what? I I can't replicate that experience. And so you may take a piece in this vehicle and you may lose money on it. But if you got some consumptive joy out of it, that's interesting. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of folks miss when it comes to collectors. This doesn't map one-to-one as an investment or like stocks. It just doesn't. Because people can own interesting trading cards that are interesting to them because maybe they grew up in Cleveland and that player played there when they were, you know, in the 80s, right? That card is, you know, maybe worth five bucks to everyone else in the world, but it's worth more to them because, wow, it like touches some some bit of nostalgia for them. And that, I think, is is a really important part. Not to nerd out too much, but for something to be essentially an investment contract, it has to like, you know, adhere to these different rules, which is sort of, you know, the investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit and derived from the efforts of others, right? And that's a really boring test, but it's important because there isn't necessarily an expectation of profit in these things. The value of a Corvette may go up and down that will have no effect on me or no effect on the efforts that I make. I can say, I love Corvettes and I own this Corvette, but people are going to like Corvettes no matter what I do, or they're going to hate him because Chevy does something awful with it. Well, I mean, and say you have like a Corvette that's a vintage or so forth, and they appreciate it over time. Like they get to a certain depreciation, but then they start appreciating over time, right? That increases the value of the NFT if the guy wants to sell his stake in it. For sure. And there's nothing wrong with these things appreciating in value. And that's okay. And in fact, by adding this mechanism of understanding the provenance, you're likely to increase the value even further because you can track all these things transparently over time. And that's that's really important. And so you might make money, but the key here is you can't say, oh, oh, give me your money because this is 100% going to go up in value, right? You have to sort of you know make sure you, you preface it or caveat this. Collectors understand that. They know that, oh, okay, yeah, I want this because I get these other benefits out of it. And that's interesting. What is the most practical use of this now? Or where have you seen the opportunity in this being used? So we have jump.co. In the case of us, you know, we've built a a platform that that essentially allows a bunch of these different, you know, whether you're trading cards, vintage cars, fine arts, we allow folks who are experts in those to have their own marketplace to be able to do exactly this. And we don't really talk about NFTs or any of those. We don't nerd out about the technology. It's about connecting buyers and sellers and, and helping them understand exactly what they're getting and verify that provenance and all those kinds of things. And I think that's 
that's really, really important. But the tech is not important. One of the biggest interesting use cases we've seen is sort of as an access mechanism. So whether that's access to an event, so I might be a ticket going to a, a show. The most important part of that is baked into NFTs is this concept of a royalty. So let's say I am the NFL and I have, you know, let's just say it's 100,000 tickets to the Super Bowl. Well, guess what? Those tickets get swept up by the season ticket holders and then they get immediately scalped and sold and sold and sold. And the NFL never sees any sales on those. With an NFT, you can set an arbitrary royalty rate that says, okay, 20% of this has to go back to the NFL every time it sells. And that gets really, really interesting because now you've built an, a really compelling business model into this. And guess what? It, it means they don't have to care about scalpers anymore. The market will decide what the value of these tickets is. And guess what? They see their, their kickback every time. That is really, really important. The other one is just access to limited or sort of you finite. You could do that with movies. You could do that with music. You could like so many things. Yeah. And music's another great example. There, there's been a bunch of artists that have essentially said, look, there's these five NFTs that our super fans can pay for. And it turns out that their super, super fans are the ones who can actually bankroll the entire thing. And other people can participate at, at lower levels, but these super fans will pay a lot of money to get that really top tier access, which is interesting. And you know, the other one is there's a couple of restaurants in New York now. You know, you think about a restaurant and there's a finite number of tables, there's a finite number of hours open in the day, there's figure 55 minutes for every table to turn it. So you can kind of do the math on exactly how many folks you can get through there. Well, if your average ticket sale is $150. You can exactly map out how much money you're going to make. But if you're a hot restaurant and the reviews are popping off and everybody wants to get in, how can you maximize that? And so now what people are doing are saying, we're going to do a limited edition, 100 NFTs. And if you have one of these NFTs, we're always going to have three tables set aside for holders of this. And you can come in and get a table anytime you want. So guess what? They can sell those and that royalty mechanism goes back to the restaurant, right? It becomes a new revenue stream for them. And really, as far as the users are concerned, is like, oh, hey, I just want to get a table in this restaurant. It's a super hot restaurant and I can buy this for $1,000 and it gets me in there. Awesome. I don't care. I want to get in. I heard about it. It's awesome. So that's the things that are opening up from a model perspective in these things that I think are, are super, super exciting. And that's kind of where the rubber is going to meet the road. I use that analogy way too much, but I think it's, <laughs> I think it's an important one. It's a good one. I just used it the other day. At least you didn't say at the end of the day. Well, I actually do that. I do that a lot too, but yeah. <laughs> I was at a board meeting one time and everyone kept saying at the end of the day. So I started tallying it up. In the first 15 minutes, it was like it said seven times. You put it in the meeting like, minutes. That's and... it, guys. That's it. All right. So how'd you get into this? What was the natural progression? When did you say, oh my gosh, this is a great opportunity? Or when did you say, that's it? Something's got to change here. I've been really lucky, really blessed in the fact that I've had a lot of, of really great opportunities and I've had the flexibility. And it, it's either a blessing or a curse, honestly, that as an entrepreneur, I, I kind of just get to flit around to different things. You know, during the sort of web one times, I saw a bunch of people sharing software and the source code to it. And that became the open source movement. And I was like, that's cool. How's anybody going to make money on that? I don't care, but they figured it out. Same thing with Web2 and just watching sort of the cloudification of everything. And it was layered on top of this open source and that was neat. And when mobile happened, 
I was literally had a, a couple co-founders and we were like, well, we just got laid off from our gig. What are we going to do? And one of our co-founders was like, well, there's this whole iPhone thing over here and they have this thing called push notifications. That looks kind of interesting, but we're not sure. And I was like, that's the business. Let's do that. And we just dove in. And, and again, it became timing and going sort of all chips in on it. And the best part about going all chips in on these things is you can fail really fast. You know, there were some projects that we did that failed, but they failed within six weeks. And so guess what? Pull up stakes, move on to the next thing. That's sort of what we've done over over the years. After we did the push notification company, we said, geez, there's all this cannabis getting legalized everywhere and we know software. So let's build a point of sale system and we won't touch the plants or deal with any of the cannabis part of it. We'll just build software. Again, it was a timing thing and we ended up being able to sell that back in 2017. And then same thing with Web3. Although we got into Web3 a little later, I think we're getting in a, a, another interesting time because there's sort of the rubble and the dust and we're getting to pick up the pieces. I think if I were starting from scratch today or if I was diving into something, I'd, I'd go whole hog in on AI. It's just inevitable. It, it is super, super interesting. There's so much room for, for things to do there. My co-founder and I just kind of nerded out one afternoon and my wife's an attorney. And I said, uh, would you ever use this? And she said, absolutely not. I would never use ChatGPT. And then I looked on Reddit and asked a bunch of people, would you ever use this? Absolutely not. This is, this is ridiculous. And I said, okay, well, ask me a question. Like, what's something you're trying to solve for right now? And an attorney said, I, I need a motion to compel for somebody's social media data. And I need them to cite specific federal and state. And this should be for the state of Washington. And I was like, cool. So I went off, asked ChatGPT, said, craft a motion to compel, cut and paste it, send it to them. They're like, shit, this is part of my French. <laughs> this is really good. So we literally took an afternoon and, and we made a add-on for Microsoft Word that allows attorneys to basically either create a template from scratch, give suggestions on an entire document, or just select a bit of text and, and give some suggestions. And then all of it we framed around sort of the legal components. In other words, we would sort of warm up ChatGPT to say, hey, you should focus on legal. Anyways, it took us two hours to do this. And there's a whole business around that, that that I think people will be able to take advantage of. And we're actually going to post about that later. But again, it's just, it, it's like this crazy disruptive thing that's happening that you couldn't do six months ago. Yeah. And that's that's super exciting. Anyways. It is super exciting. And I'm so glad you're excited about it. Disruption is cool. It is. Okay. Give me an elevator pitch on jump.co and where is it going? We're really a marketplace, a third-party white label marketplace for folks who are interested in selling interesting, compelling assets. So it could be trading cards, fine art, you know, all those kinds of things. We work with our partners to deliver these. So we've gone out and found a bunch of really interesting partners that are spinning up their own marketplaces that are branded for them. They're experts in these different spaces and they have their communities and we're adding this new layer to them. The flip side of it, and the reason we haven't like told everybody, hey, go to jump.co and sign up for an account, is we've been getting through the regulatory component. It's really critical, especially for the people who have these expensive assets and deep pockets, that we get the regulatory part right. Otherwise, we're ripe for getting sued and class action and all those kinds of things. And so we've been going through the regulatory components, which we think are, are going pretty well, and such that it's going to be within the, the rules of the SEC and the CFTC and all, all those regulatory bodies that are out there, and that we have the correct controls in place such that you know folks aren't scamsters and fraudsters. And so 
this is not exactly an elevator pitch, but the point is where we're going to get in the future. <laughs> it's a is long that, elevator. <laughs> I know, I know. But very soon no, people I'm will kidding. be able to take advantage of these services. We're hoping in the next couple of months. And it's going to happen really, really quickly and at scale. And, and so, you know, our first customer has $25 million in trading cards ready to, to go live in our staging environment. We just have to jump through a couple more regulatory hurdles. It's very exciting. It's going to move really quickly. And in the very near future, folks will be able to go to jump.co and pick from a range of these different assets and pick and choose into their shopping cart, buy them. And then there's going to be a whole range of consumptive utility that'll fall out of those. That's that's super, super exciting. Wow. How fun. Yeah. And when you say white label, give me a little more data on that. We're not experts in trading cards or or vintage cars or fine art. There's plenty of other folks who've, who've spent years, if not decades, being focused on those industries. Those are, are, you know, maybe industries that haven't moved very quickly on the technology side, and we're sort of giving them a leg up to continue to be their brand, but with a bunch of new tools that are sort of Web3 enabled. And it allows them to continue to do what they're doing. They have their curated communities that have trust and understanding. And all we're doing is helping enable them. And, and the idea that us coming in and saying, no, 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 just send us all your stuff and trust us. We can verify it or we could store it or whatever. It just doesn't make sense. And we just prefer to do it this way because there's a bunch of really awesome communities out there that we want to help enable. And yes, we're going to build an interesting, compelling business on top of that, but so are they as well. And that to me is exciting. Yeah, I think that's a great synergy. Yeah. All right. So you're super interested in life. You get interested in all these things. Like, what do you do outside of (laughs) jump.co? Like, do you have any other? Well, I mean, I'm married and I have three kids. So that definitely takes up a lot of my time. But it's interesting. I love to cook. I love to bake. I have named sourdough starters and all those kinds of things. Aren't you like a big pizza guy? I do. Yeah. I also make my own pizza and I do the from scratch doughs and all that kind of stuff. And what do you bake? Bre- a lot of breads. I actually just did a really mean focaccia yesterday. And uh, I do these long proofs, like three day proofs in the fridge and all that. And it's just, it's been really fun doing those things. And, you know, I always have folks like, oh, you should open a restaurant. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I will never do that because I love this too much. I just enjoy you know, having fun with it. But that, that definitely keeps me really busy. And then, you know, just kind of nerding out and helping other startups too. I, I advise a couple startups, you know, right after this podcast, I jump on my weekly call with one of my startups and I just love helping entrepreneurs. Because I've I've gone through that crucible and it is painful. It's the loneliest damn job in the world. There's something about just being there for those folks, being able to bounce stuff off, gives me a bunch of energy to keep doing what I'm doing. And so those are the kinds of things that I keep me pretty dang busy. That's awesome. Okay, so how do people get a hold of you? You can find me, follow me, all those good things at kaviton.com. It's K-V as in Victor, E-T-O-N.com. And I'm pretty much at Kaviton on everything. So And LinkedIn. And LinkedIn. Yep. LinkedIn. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Before we end off, is there anything you want people to think about in regards to this new disruption of Web3 and NFTs or having people really look at it from a different perspective or don't believe the hype or don't <laughs> fall into the false data? What would you say? I think the biggest theme that's sort of been ringing true to me is, is don't think about these disruptive things as bad. The first thing people talked about around AI was, oh, it's going to take everybody's jobs. But instead, what if you could just work on things that you really wanted to work on and you could have AI sort of deal with the minutia? That would be amazing. That would be so fun. And I think the the other piece is don't be the negative naysayer 
there's a lot of folks who can build a brand around saying how awful something is, but like, is that really a life you want to lead? Be somebody who's going to lead and, and build something interesting and compelling. If you don't like something, just say you don't like it and move on. Don't build a business around not liking something. I see this in Web3. I saw it in Web2. I mean, there were naysayers who said the internet was going to be a fad and they built big names around themselves and then they sort of <laughs> devolved into mediocrity. But yeah, so so be positive, build something interesting and compelling and embrace the disruption and figure out how you can use it to your advantage. I love it. Embrace it. Mic drop. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun. Super interesting. You keep me interested. I can't wait to see what happens with Jump.co. Cool. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me on. You're welcome. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed or want a bread recipe from Scott, tell people to go <laughs> and listen to this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from the show. Thanks for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.